So we turn in the Old Testament to the book of Amos, chapter 8, reading the entirety of that chapter. God's word from the Old Testament, reading all of Amos, chapter 8. Give your attention to the reading of it, God's holy and inspired word. Amos 8. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from the north to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. As for the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? What's your dream job? Well, there are many professions to choose from. And if you think about it, most of them are pretty indispensable. In fact, if you ponder, pretty much every job is crucial to our life and society. Now, sure, some occupations are fluff and pointless. We could do few with fewer administrators and bureaucrats, fewer YouTube influencers. And yet most jobs are keenly necessary. Imagine if all of a sudden there were no more trash men the streets would reek with garbage. If all the doctors disappeared, death would break out like a rat infestation. Mechanics, teachers, accountants, without such careers, our society and quality of life would diminish drastically. A world without farmers would be a scary place. 
Well, in a similar way, the Lord promises to remove a vocation from Israel. A current line of employment will be no more, and the consequences couldn't be more fatal and disastrous. And this calling is that of prophet, making the word of God unable to be found. So after Amos' run-in with the priest in charge at Bethel, the Lord returns with another vision for our prophet. He gave him three visions in the first half of, half of chapter 7, and now he hands him a fourth. And like the third vision, the significance of this one is not immediately obvious. What Amos sees is clear enough, but what it means is another matter. So Amos views a basket of summer fruit, and the fruit referred to here is most likely figs. This is the last crop of late summer figs gathered in September. Now, a basket of figs, this strikes us as a rather pleasant and bountiful image. Kind of like a cornucopia, a basket of fruit is picture perfect for sweet happiness. Abundant, delicious, savory baskets of fruit are for lazy summer afternoons by the pool. And in ancient Israel, it wasn't too much different, except for figs, it meant rejoicing. In Israel, the fig was considered to be the perfect fruit, as it had no pith to peel, no pit to eat around, And it was sugary sweet. So after a long summer of harvesting, the last crop of figs cracked open the songs of joy, feasting in the orchards, and every fig dessert possible. It was a fig extravaganza. This basket of figs evokes the happiest of times. And yet our Lord likes his surprises. He enjoys flipping our first impressions on their head. And so Yahweh now gives an interpretation of the fig basket by a play on words. In Hebrew, the word for fig sounds almost exactly like the word for end. Thus, in verse 2, the end has come on my people Israel. The final fig means the finale for the people. As the figs, the people are finished. This fig basket is no reason to rejoice, but it's an omen of the end. Now, this likely plays off that figs being very perishable and being the last crop of the season. As summer ends, so will the people. Yahweh is bringing upon his people their total end. This is their termination and conclusion with no encores, no to-be-continues, no life after death. This is a solid, indelible period, full stop. Therefore, instead of rejoicing over fine figs, the woman choir of the palace will wail. The pop songs turn into dirges, melodies morph into screaming and howling. The sad shrieking ruins your eardrums, it shatters the crystal glasses, and worse than the squealing tunes are the lyrics. Amos quotes 
what this lady choir sings. So many corpses thrown everywhere. Hush. These singers are portrayed as walking between piles of human bodies upon the battlefield and down the city streets. The corpses have been tossed carelessly all over like a teenager casting aside his socks. Death is knee-deep, which causes the mourners to hush themselves. Now, this call to be quiet is probably preventive magic. The silence works like an anti-curse charm to ward off further disasters. Hush, do not stir the demons and deities who work this woe. Yet lest we think that the end is too severe, the Lord recalls the crimes of his people. He alternates judgment with their sin. Therefore, Yahweh sets his sight upon those who trample the needy and put an end to the poor. Now, this condemnation we've heard before. Back in chapter 2, nearly word for word, the Lord indicted the same criminals and crimes. Yet here he teases out more concrete details about how they trample the lower classes of Israelites. Note, it says God, or God actually quotes what they say to themselves so that we get to hear their depravity from their own lips. First, they cannot wait for the holy days of the new moon and the Sabbath to be over so they can go back to making money. They count down the end of the Sabbath like it's a car race. But what's so sinister about this? Well, to begin with, this shows their ambitious love of money. Secondly, it betrays their hatred of God's time. The Sabbath is God's holy time when you rest in him and enjoy him. To despise this, to find God's time to be a pain in the neck, both scoffs at God and tramples underfoot what is so precious to the Lord. Finally, this impatience reeks of hypocrisy. That is, they still keep the Sabbath. They follow the rules not to work, but they can't stand it. Externally, they conform to the Sabbath regulations, but their heart is everywhere except on the Sabbath. And the next crime denounced here is deceitful scales and dishonest weights and measures. Now, the standard ephah in Israel was about a 40-liter bushel, but these guys will sell you one that's deceptively only 38 liters, and their weights are overweight. That is, when you weigh your money on the scale, it costs you more. Cheating and stealing is actually part of their business plan. Finally, they buy those in debt cheap. For a small loan of 50 bucks, the poor are sold and bought as slaves. These business operators see not humans, but only cattle and products to be shuffled around for maximum profits. And for treating life of the life of others so lightly, the Lord will now treat them lightly. Now the Lord swears an oath against Israel, and this time he promises to never forget their deeds. Now in the Old Testament, 
For the Lord to forget or to remember your sin reveals another level of the covenant. For within the sacrificial system, to forgive sin meant the Lord pardoned you from guilt, which saved your life. But forgiveness didn't remove all the consequences of your sin. That is, you could be forgiven, but your your sin could still be remembered by God, which meant the debt of your sin yet had to be paid. David's adultery and murder is a good example of this. For his high crimes, David was forgiven and allowed to live. But he still had to pay for his sin, which cost him four sons and all his concubines. For the Lord to swear then to never forget their wicked ways means he will punish them completely and forever. In the previous chapter, the Lord made clear to Amos that he was not going to forgive his unrepentant people. But now, he asserts that he will spare them no punishment. They will taste the full cup of God's wrath. And the wrath coming undoes not merely these sinners, but creation itself. Notice it says that the whole land will tremble and shake. The solidity of the soil shall become the fluidity of water. Just as the Nile surges during flood season, swelling and seeking, sinking as turbulent waters, so the ground under their feet will rise and fall. And not only will the rocks become jello, but life itself, light itself, will fail. The sun will be put to death at high noon. On a bright day, darkness shall invade and conquer the land. Darkness at night is terrifying enough, but for darkness to run wild during the day is chaotic terror. This unscrews one of the most stable cycles of the cosmos. For the sun to be snuffed out spells the disillusion of creation. It brings complete sadness and wailing. For note, he says, all joy will die. Every feast will become a funeral. No eye will be dry. And all the outfits of mourning, or all the outfits of mourning will be the only thing that they wear. Baldness will dot every head and sackcloth itch every back. Bitter, bitter will be the day. Every last smidgen of sweet and savory will turn into a rancid pungency and sour. And if this isn't traumatic beyond the point of sanity, the Lord makes it worse. On top of the weeping in the dark, the Lord will now release a drought, an arid and parched plague. But this is not your normal drought. It isn't water that will be scarce. Food will not be the thing in short supply. Instead, this will be a drought of the word of God. Note he says, no truth will rain down from the Lord. The profession of prophet and preacher will be a 100% vacant. Oh, they'll be false preachers. Pretend prophets will be common enough, but a true mouthpiece of God shall not be found the Lord will go completely silent. Every honest pulpit will be bare, 
people will stagger from sea to sea. They will roam from the sunrise to the far north. Like a drunk man trying to find his car. So the Israelites will wobble around for the word, but they will not find it. Yet why is this such a deadly dry spell? Well, the Lord's word is how we live. Hearing the Lord's true voice ensures that the covenant relationship is right. God speaking reveals that he is our God and we are his people. In the word, we listen to the law and we're driven towards mercy and grace. By the word, the Lord assures us of his care and oversight. He administers his promises to feed us and feed our faith and hope. The word is nutrients and rehydration to nourish our souls and spirits unto everlasting life. Bread and water sustain the body for this life, but the word is the meat and vegetables unto everlasting life. The word orients us in the stability of God. It declares our identity in the Lord for our spiritual health. But if the word is no more... Then we lose our anchor. If God zips his mouth and dishes out silence, then we are disconnected from the light and life of the Lord. Without the power of the word, our souls starve on the poison of the world's lies. Without the law of God, we can't tell our right hand from our left hand. Without the gospel, we remain in the quicksand of self-salvation. Nothing is more vital for our lives here and now and for forever than the true word of God rightly proclaimed. Thus, for the Lord to withhold his word is for him to forsake his people and to consign them to the dungeon of hopeless doom. Note the sad outcome of the people being unable to find the true word of God. It says that the most vigorous and vital among the people soon faint. The fiery young women and the spirited young men crumble in weakness. With throats parched from the truth, they wet their tongues with a lie. They end up swearing by the God of Dan and the deity of Beersheba. In the absence of Yahweh's word, they invoke the names of false gods upon their tongues. They swear loyalty to nothing gods for security in life. Without the anchor of God's word that keeps us tethered to him, we drift off towards the dark fate of idolatry. For as you know, there's no neutral ground. We are either with God or with idolatry. We either walk in the light of his word or we stumble in the darkness of falsehood. And with idle names upon the tongues, sinners fall and they never rise again. Verse 14. In the drought of God's word, these vigorous youths stumble, fall, and they never get back up. To never rise imprisons them to death in this life and the next. Eternal darkness is their destiny forecasted here. And from this scary chapter, 
of Amos, two realities stand out that drive us to Christ. First, there's the nature of this dark day of judgment. From the piles of the dead bodies, to the liquefying of the earth, to the agonizing lamentation, this is the just punishment for our sin. These are the wages of sin, both in this life and forever. The crimes were listed, and the punishment was executed. No, uh, no less than is revolved, these are the penalties that we have earned by our sinful selves. And yet this terrifying wrath has another fulfillment. This line about the sun being dark at noon and darkness being upon the land on a sunny day, this verse is picked up by each gospel writer for when Jesus was upon the cross. For what was the time of day when Jesus was stapled to that four by four? At high noon, the Lord was impaled upon the cross. And as Jesus hung there slowly bleeding out, the sun went dark. The blackest night fogged over the land for those hours of Golgotha. And the full measure of God's wrath of the day of the Lord fell upon Jesus as he was on the cross. And if the wrath here is the payment for sin, then Jesus felt the wrath of the Father to pay for your sin. Jesus endured the darkness so that you don't have to. He drank bitterness for you. The violence of this judgment on this chapter makes us want to look away. But once we see that this torment fell upon Christ for our sin, our faith cannot look away. We must gaze intently upon the suffering of Jesus Christ for our salvation. For as we behold the cross of Christ in faith, then we taste the sweetness of his eternal blessings. Namely, since Christ suffered on our behalf, the Father does not remember your sin any longer. Here the Lord refused to forgive, and he swore to remember their sins forever. Yet by drinking the cup of wrath for us, Jesus earned for us both forgiveness and forgetfulness. In fact, in Jeremiah, he forecast the superiority of the new covenant precisely with this miracle that God will forgive and forget our sins. Through the blood of Christ, the Father forgets forgets your sins Dear saints, isn't this the most amazing gift that the all-knowing God of heaven and earth becomes forgetful of your iniquities because Christ covered them? The Father looks upon you in Christ and it is as if you have never sinned. Christ erases your sins from the history books for good in his death. This is something that we cannot even do for ourselves. When we look in the mirror, we can still recall the shameful infractions of our past, both distant and recent. The tawdriness of childhood, 
the rebellions as a teenager, the secret perversities in our adult hearts, these still can haunt us. We may know we're forgiven of them, but the disgrace of our past sins can yet gnaw at our minds. But what we cannot forget, the Father has already forgotten. So pure is his love to you, so complete is the atonement of Jesus, that the Father has forgotten your sin and remembers you only as his sweet daughters and beloved sons. The blessed forgiveness of God our Father. This is amazing. But there is a second way that this chapter roots us in Christ, namely by the word. Here, as part of the punishment and fury, the Lord gave his people the silent treatment. He withheld his life-giving word so that all would perish. Well, as with the darkening of the sun, Jesus also experienced the drought of the word upon the cross. For those few torturous hours, the Father did not speak to the Son. Christ's cry of being God-forsaken is for him to not hear the voice of the Father. Communication was cut. The phone line went dead. The eternal melody between the Father and the Son was paused. On the cross, Jesus felt the most awkward and painful silence. To satisfy all justice, This, too, Jesus had to endure. And yet, by braving the quiet of death, Jesus became the living and resurrected Word of God. In the incarnation, the Word of God became flesh. And in the resurrection, the Word of God put on immortality and won for us the everlasting Word of the Gospel. Thus, in Christ, we get to hear the voice and truth of God that never goes silent. From heaven and by the Holy Spirit, Christ continues to speak to us by his word. By the word of Christ, we're made alive. In his truth, we're sanctified. And with the word, we're never lost. Yes, by the gracious word of Jesus, We live and move and have our being in this life and forever in glory. Thus, having the word of God poured into our hearts and announced regularly in our ears, may this word also be in our tongues. Yes, with all spiritual wisdom, may we build one another up and encourage one another with the word. That the word of Christ dwell in us richly so that we might bless each other with thankfulness in our hearts to God. As well as, may we ever support and be devoted to the ministry of the word. For we are those who send out beautiful feet to preach the gospel far and wide. For where the word is not heard, the people perish. But in the hearing of the gospel, there's life forevermore and the sweet worship of God. So then may the word of Christ flourish among us and may it flourish across this globe for the praise 
and adoration of our blessed triune God. Amen. Let's pray.